Blog Talk Radio. Good evening in the ancient Paleo-Hebrew. 
I'm your host, your brother, your friend, as always, Tagapa. What's going on, y'all? Shalom. What is happening in y'all world? Welcome to another episode of Bible Talk, man. Uh, little show we, me and my my, my and myself have been doing for over the past 10 years. Welcome to the show, uh, Tagapa's Tuesdays. Uh, this show, uh, this format, I spent about an hour of current events, um, news, because of soapbox, and then I'll get into the class. I <clears throat> um, hope everybody is healthy. hope everybody's in good spirits, man. Um, just received not too long ago some uh, very disturbing news about a brother, our brother, RBI, um, is uh, scheduled for surgery tomorrow, y'all. He's got some um, very serious things going on. I'm going to ask everyone to please keep the brother IBR in y'all prayers. Uh, I will definitely keep him in mind, man. Been knowing this brother for quite a long time. Was introduced to him uh, by Mashaba, um, actually one of Mashaba's students that uh, came up with Mashaba. Uh, but please, y'all, keep him and his family in y'all prayers, man. They're dealing with some real serious stuff. Also, I want to ask y'all to keep uh, and put the sister, um, oh, man, what's the sister name? Y'all name that quick. <clears throat> the sister Yapaya and her family uh, in your prayers, uh, they're dealing with some very serious Things as well. They just got some bad, some bad news about her sister. So I'm going to ask that y'all would please keep her family and um, her sister in y'all prayers, man. Please. Um, what else, man? Oh uh, yeah, I, we. I'm, I know I did, y'all. Y'all probably celebrated. Y'all probably, um, you know, enjoyed yourselves for Perim, but I did not, man. We missed Perim. Um, that's on me because I usually check in with Mashaba when I know we get close to the high holy days. But um, me and my little absent-mindedness uh, didn't check in with them, and uh, it went down, man. Uh, this past weekend was Purim. So happy Purim, y'all. Uh, what else? I want to send shots out to all our affiliated schools, the brothers here in San Antonio. Um, and I also want to ask for prayers for the brother of war. Heard it through the grapevine that he uh, is currently dealing with some back injury issues, some stuff going on. I know through the years he's uh, routinely had issues going on with his back, um, back and forth. So I want to ask y'all to keep him in y'all prayers as well. Uh, wish him a speedy recovery. Uh, so he can get back. Uh, but shout out to him and the brothers that are here in San Antonio. Shout out also to uh, Kazakia up in VA. And prayers for him as well because, ironically enough, he uh, was going through having some back issues, uh, going back and forth. And I don't know. I have a check in on the brother in a minute. I talked to him like two weeks ago uh, concerning his back issues. And he said he was getting better. He said he was getting better. Uh, 
he told me that he believed it was the, the sunflower seeds he was eating, uh, which is possible because sometimes we can consume too much sodium, and sodium makes your uh, body swell. So uh, in, in the swelling, we know it's inflammation. So maybe he was on to something, but he said uh, he was going to come off the seeds and see what it do. Uh, in light of that, too, y'all, I want to say this. Uh, if y'all are not plugged into this brother right here, let me just give y'all the information. I think I've given this information out before. <clears throat> so y'all may or may, may or may not have heard of this brother, Patrick Dells. He's all over YouTube. The brother's in his, I think, his mid, mid to late 60s. He might be older than that. But the brother looked like he like 40-some years old, man. But he always does these health videos, a lot of health information. Well, he has a store uh, located in New York by the name of Ambrosia. The name of the store is Ambrosia. And the, 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 uh, the map or the phone number for the store is 718-469-469. 0985. Once again, 718-469-0985. Now, I'm giving this number out because I'll be in touch with these brothers a lot, man. In fact, they were the ones that helped me uh, through my prostate ordeal that I uh, was going through and still going through, man. It's it's something that I've just become used to. Um, but... Um, they recommended a prostate blend tea, which uh, helped to shrink my prostate down. And like I said, man, I, I've been good. You know, I can't complain. I just, in fact, uh, reached out to the brothers to get what they call the lymphatic blend, uh, which is the blend herbal teas um, that helps clean out the lymphatic system. All right? It helps cleanse the lymphatic system, y'all. These little flying buzzes everywhere. So it helps clean out the lymphatic system. I also recommended several people, including Kazaki. Kazaki got, got their number. Um, to call, man. Call and uh, you'll get a consultation, whatever element you may have going on. you get a consultation and they'll recommend some things to you. They'll recommend some things to you, man. Good brothers. Cool brothers. Uh, the brother that's more than likely the brother that, answer, that answers the phone is the Benjamite brother. He has a very thick Benjamite accent, y'all. So if you're not familiar with uh, talking to Benjamin, I mean so-called Jamaicans, uh, they have very thick accents, some of them anyway. But if you're not used to it, man, uh, you have to listen very, very, very carefully to, to understand what they're saying, man. But good brothers, good people, I highly recommend Ambrosia. Um, it's a good good place, man. Good good herbs. Good herbs. Um, oh yeah, well then what that said too, let me share this too, y'all. And I got this from uh Patrick Dells, man. But I was listening to him once and he was talking about how every three to four months he does a cleanse in which he just goes on a fast and he does it, he said, for seven days. And it's just a uh it's a juice fast, y'all. Nothing but juices for seven days. Now I've done this before. The first time I did it, I I made it to I made it to five days. I I couldn't make it to the uh, the seven days, man. 
that fifth day, and I, I wish I wish I could go back in time and actually finish off that seventh day because by that fifth day, man, and this is what made me stop, I, I, I started, I don't want to say hallucinating, but I was seeing things, man. I was I was seeing things, and uh, I ain't trying to sound real spooky or anything like that, but I just felt um, really in tune with everything, man. So I don't know if what I was seeing was spirits or, or what was going on, but it scared me to where I just said, no, nah, man, let me go to eat something. <laughs> but I, I wish, I really wish that I would have continued it to see uh, what would happen, you know. I wasn't feeling sick or anything like that. Um, my, you know, besides my energy being low, that was the only thing. But it, it, even that wasn't bad. Um, but the first time I did, like I said, I went about five days. Man, felt good. And he was talking about how um, we always eating, always eating, always eating, and we don't really uh, rationalize how hard our bodies have to work to, first of all, process the food then break it down and distribute it to where it needs to go. And then a lot of us, eat, we don't eat the best either. You know what I'm saying? So our bodies are really uh, overworking trying to break down all these processed foods, the fast food we're eating, the chips, the candy, the cookies, the cakes, you know, all the, all the crap that we eat, man. Uh, we take it for granted that our uh, bodies have to do all of this work not thinking that, you know what, my organs deserve a break. So when he was breaking this down, man, it made sense to me, and it was something that I said I was going to try out. And y'all know me, a lot of y'all know me personally, that I, I'm about health. I'll definitely be on the health kit. But, um, man, I felt great after the seven days. I think I lost probably about eight, nine pounds. Um when I was doing it. But uh and then too, I was reading without my glasses. I'm talking about really reading without my without the use of my glasses, I could see. No lie, y'all. I could. Uh but from that experience, I've I've been doing it. This is probably like my third third time doing it. So every three to four months I'll go on a juice fast. And I've just been doing it for three days. So the last time I did it, three days. This time I'm doing it three days. I'm like in my second day. Today is my second day. But I want you all to think about that, man, and start putting that into your um, your day-to-day, man. Give your body, your organs a break, especially as we age, especially as we get older. Then all this all this crap, man, they putting in the food and what's in the air. Your body deserves that, man. So just an FYI, man, you know, share that little bit of information with y'all. Um, and want to send shots out to, like I said, our affiliated schools, the rest of them, the brothers out Nala up in Rochester. Shouts out to Aisha and the crew out, out, out in Albuquerque. Uh, shouts out to our brothers and sisters in Canada, California, and Atlanta. And shouts out to Kyle Cobb down in Guatemala, man. And shouts out to the 12 tribes scattered worldwide, man. You're an Israelite walking this walk, uh, trying to live righteously, trying to live your, your life by the by the book, by the Bible. Then I salute you, man. Shalom. Shout out to all of y'all, brothers and sisters. So uh, let's go ahead and dive in, y'all. 
Let's get Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So this is the prayer we need to be sending up on the daily, y'all, so we can get the hell on. All right, uh, let's get Psalm chapter 118, verse 24. I'm joined this evening uh, once again, y'all. My reader is Hatha Diaz. She's in the building. Yay! <laughs> uh, I see, Lobby, I see you on the line. Uh, I hope you're on the way back. I do need your assistance, uh, feeding Cece, if you will, ma'am, please. Uh, but get that for me, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Psalm 118:24. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So good or bad, happy or sad, the Most High brought you to it. He'll bring you through it, and you'll come out better on the other side because of it. Please believe me. All right, y'all. So it's a lot, quite a bit going on. I don't know if y'all heard about this, man, but I seen this yesterday. And man, I I don't know if I want to call it chills or what it was, man. But it just really it effed me up to just watch it, man. And they had the uh, almost unedited version of this. But in case y'all didn't know, yesterday, man, this U.S. Airman who so happened to be from San Antonio, Texas, oh, wow. um, set himself on fire. Set itself on fire, man. Here it is right here. I said, I want you to read that. Tell them where you're reading from. From aljazeera.com, reported February 26, 2024. Active duty airman, excuse me, U.S. airman sets himself on fire outside Israel embassy to to protest genocide. Now, why did he do this? To protest genocide. Protest genocide and... When you watch the video, he's walking, right, and he's recording himself, and he's saying that uh, he's about to to do a commit an extreme protest on the war that's going on over in the Gaza Strip, which he called genocide, and he further went on to talk about, and he called them, quote, unquote, colonizers, talking about his own people, mind you before he lit himself on fire. And when I seen I'm like, man, that's horrible. That is really horrible. But then I thought, I'm like, man, this dude really has some very strong conviction to do something like this, man. Read on. Active duty airman reportedly said he did not want to be, quote, unquote, complicit in genocide as he lit himself on fire. They ain't all he said. They cut him short. That is not all he said. Read. An active member of the United States military has set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., according to officials. 
in an apparent act of protest against Israel's devastating war on Gaza. Aaron Bushnell, 25, was rushed to the hospital on Sunday with critical life-threatening injuries, according to the U.S. Capitol Fire Department. The agency said the agency said emergency responders rushed to the scene just before 1 p.m. in response to a call for person on fire outside the Israeli embassy. Now, I heard the background on this dude. The dude was about 25 years old, y'all. Young dude. And educated. He had, um, just not uh, too far ago, long ago, had uh, got his, I believe his bachelor's in some type of technology. And he was working with the Air Force in the technical field. So this wasn't just your run-of-the-mill soldier, white boy, 25, educated, uh, uh, apparently a patriot because he joined the military to fight for his country, but he's coming out speaking against his country. When you see the video, man, this dude knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to die. He he tried to, like, protect himself. Like you don't see him with like no no nothing covering his head or anything or like a fire extinguisher in his hand so he can put himself. Up. He knew what he was doing. His intentions was die, was to die. That's what I'm getting at, y'all. Before they start spinning it, because I know they are, you know how they do. They're probably gonna start talking about how he was unstable, how something was going on in his life that drove him to do uh, what he did. But you see in the video, this dude knew exactly what he was doing, and he knew exactly what he was standing for. Like I said, the dude, very strong convictions. Reno? They arrived to find that officers from the U.S. Secret Service had already extinguished the fire. The U.S. Air Force confirmed the incident involved an active-duty airman. Free Palestine. <clears throat> U.S. media reports said Bushnell live-streamed himself on Twitch, wearing fatigues and declaring he would not be complicit in genocide before dousing himself in liquid. He then lit himself on fire while yelling, Free Palestine, until he fell to the ground. The footage has since been removed from Twitch. Local police said they are investigating the incident. The police also said... An explosive ordnance disposal was requested to the scene in relation to a suspicious vehicle that may be connected to the individual. It later said that no hazardous material was found. The Israeli embassy said all of its staff members were safe, a spokesperson told the New York Times. Now, what are they talking about a suspicious vehicle? I doubt anybody had time to look around for a damn suspicious vehicle when this dude is on fire, man. Like I said, man, they spin doctors, so the spin is going to begin. Read. Israel's embassy has been the target of continued protests against the Israeli war on Gaza. The protests started after October 7th when Hamas, the Palestinian group that rules Gaza, killed 1,200 Israelis and seized 253 hostages in a cross-border attack. Since then, Israeli forces have waged a military campaign against the coastal enclave laying much of it to waste, with nearly 30,000 people dead, according to Palestinian health officials. And they are, man. Y'all seen pictures. I've seen pictures of it today, man. 
and it looks like um, a nuclear weapon has been dropped over there. That's the way it looks. And every day you turn on the news, all you hear about is humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip. As a matter of fact, the last thing that I heard was this. Get this. Uh, the Palestinian people are upset because the Israelis, the small hats, won't let them know where their dead is being buried at. And uh, according to the reports, they said that the Israelis, the small heads, have a cemetery where they bury uh, their enemy combatants at, but they don't uh, put their names. They just put a number on them. But a lot of these Palestinians, they don't, they, they're not being permitted to even go to that cemetery to see where their people have been buried. They're not allowed to see the body or any of that. And it's funny because I remember at the summit, Mashaba, you remember this too, that uh, Matatawa was talking about the is the is uh, the Palestinians was complaining about this when he was he was going into death and he was going into uh, the value of our bodies and things of that nature. But everything he's saying has been validated throughout the news, man. But this is what they're doing. They're not allowing these people to see their loved ones' bodies, man. It, these these are some really sick, sick-ass people, man. They really are. They are, They are like the scriptures tell us in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9, the chief house of Satan. They truly are. What did you read? Okay. Um, in December, a protester set herself on fire outside the Israeli consulate. So the white boy wasn't the first one to do it. They had somebody do a win in December? In December. In December. They just had, and this was a woman that did this. A woman that set herself on fire and protest. Now, you, when you hear stories like this, like a man, yeah, I get a man, but a woman. A woman did, a woman set herself on fire? Huh? Read. In Atlanta. A Palestinian flag was found at the scene, and the act was believed to be one of extreme political protest. Mm -hmm. All right. So now now let me show y'all what he was protesting, man. And he probably didn't even know this, or maybe he did. Maybe he did. But in case y'all don't know this, I want to inform y'all of this. Read this. From aljazeera.com, reported on February 25th, 2024. With all that. Man, you know what? Before we read, before we get this, before we get this, let's go to Habakkuk chapter 2. And let's read verse 10. So back to the white boy. His strong convictions led him to protest against his own nation, his own nation. And read this. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people. Now, it says, thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people. Now, when you read the beginning of this chapter, and even the whole chapter, it doesn't tell you who it's really talking about. 
So all we're left with concerning this chapter are different clues. So read this again. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people. Now, who's done this? Who has consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people? Read. And has sinned against thy soul. Now, this is the kicker. Read. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. So when it talks about a stone uh, crying out of a wall, a stone is the part of the building, right? It says, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. A beam is what you use in construction also to put up a building, the interiors of a building, the gut of a building. Now, the reason I'm pulling this scripture because this white boy that just killed himself, he's the stone. He's the beam. He's the foundation of America that's crying and speaking out against America, crying and speaking out against his own nation. I want y'all to see this. Read on. I'm sorry. That was verse what? I'm at, um, 11. Did you finish 11? Yeah. All right, so that's him crying out against his nation against his own country. It's no different than um, when you get those people that work at big-name corporations and they find out years later that the, the chemicals they've been producing has been killing people, and somebody comes forward and they say something, they call them whistleblowers, right? Mm-hmm. This dude was a whistleblower on the, the highest level of a whistleblower you could get on to where he's blowing the whistle at the, uh, the evil that his own country, his own nation is doing, man. This is where we at, and this is what this this is who this chapter is actually talking about. It's talking about the so-called white man. We about to get more into it, and I'm gonna prove it to y'all, man. But let's find out what this dude was protesting, whether he he knew it or not. Now go to the uh, the article that I, I pulled up. I want you to read from AlJazeera.com. With all eyes on. On Gaza, Israel steps up demolitions of Palestinian homes. Israel does what? Steps up demolitions of Palestinian homes. Demolition of Palestinian homes. Y'all know what demolition is? It's when you go in and you blow stuff up and you level it with the ground. Like the demolition that was done at 9-11, the World Trade Towers. Go back and, and watch those interviews of those uh firefighters saying that it was blowing up floor block floor and it sounded like explosions because that's what it actually was it was demolition but this is what they're doing over in uh palestine right now all throughout the gaza, gaza strip this demolishing demolition or demolizing those houses of the palestinian people now listen to this read we can't stand this suffering for long, Palestinian activists in East Jerusalem warn. Occupied East Jerusalem. Fakhri Abu Diab had no time to pack his belongings when the Israeli authorities arrived on his doorstep and occupied East Jerusalem on February 14th. The police first evicted his family and then ordered a bulldozer to demolish his home. Yeah, they, they evicted his family. This dude is an activist. They evicted his family, put him out, and then they tore his crib down right in front of him. That's gangster. 
Read. All of my memories were in that house, said Abu Diab, 62, who was born and raised in that home. I even had a picture of my mother holding me as a child. It was hanging on our wall, but now it's gone. He was born and raised in the house. Like I said, man, they the real gangsters. They portray us all on the news for selling uh, narcotics and shooting people and doing all this other stuff, nonsense, this wickedness that we be doing. And it is definitely wicked. They are the inventors of wickedness. We ain't doing no stuff like this. We don't have no control like this. You putting people out their house. That they this dude said he was born there. He got a picture of him as an infant in his mama's arm and I, arms. And I believe this dude is like in his sixties. Sixty-two. Sixty-two years old. How many memories he got in that house? They kick him out of his crib, and then he has to stand there and witness them demolish it. You know? In the wake of Israel's devastating war on Gaza, the Jerusalem municipality has stepped up home demolitions on the east side of the city, which Israel annexed from the occupied West Bank in 1967, and where most of Jerusalem's 362,000 Palestinians live. During the first nine months of 2023, Israel demolished a total of 97 Palestinian homes but 87 homes have been bulldozed in East Jerusalem since Hamas's deadly attack on Israeli communities and military outposts in southern Israel on October 7th last year, according to Ir Amin, a local nonprofit which monitors home demolitions and advocates for human rights. This is not a coinky-dink. I'm going to show you all, Reed. The acute uptick in demolitions suggests that Jerusalem's municipality is exploiting the global attention on Gaza, where nearly nearly 30,000 Palestinians have been killed to try and uproot more Palestinians from East Jerusalem. They're trying to get them out. Activists and experts say, these demolitions are done under the guise of law enforcement as if it's a bureaucratic measure but it's actually a form of state violence, and it serves as a mechanism of Palestinian displacement to drive them from the city, said Amy Cohen, the Director of International Relations and Advocacy for Ir Amin. See, and this is why that white boy set himself on fire. So he knew this, and then y'all know that people in the military, sometimes they be privy to information that we don't have. So he might have this, this other look, or he might have had this other little bit of information I'm going to share with y'all this evening. We don't? Violence. Israel justifies the demolishing Palestinian homes in East Jerusalem by claiming that they have been built without permits. The municipality typically only allows majority Jewish neighborhoods to build new homes. The legal discrimination has forced Palestinians to build without permits. What what part are you in now? Here. What was the heading? Systemic violence. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Uh, The legal discrimination has forced Palestinians to build without permits, rendering 28% of Palestinian homes in East Jerusalem illegal. The Israeli authorities have issued orders to demolish most of them, according to Daniel Seidman, an Israeli lawyer who specializes in legal and public issues in East Jerusalem. So I want you to read to um, 
there will be a reaction due to that part. As a matter of fact, y'all, I'm gonna take. We have to take a real quick break. I'm sorry, y'all. Nature is calling. Hold on. I'm back. Go ahead, finish reading. Before the war, there were roughly 20,000 outstanding demolition orders, and those orders never expire, Seidman told Al Jazeera. Home demolitions are prohibited under international law unless they are necessary for military operations. So they're prohibited under international law. Unless it's for war. <laughs> How convenient. Read. But Omar Shakir, the Israel-Palestine director of Human Rights Watch, said the Israel, that Israel has created a legal structure to allow it to demolish Palestinian homes. There are different mechanisms to enforce demolition, each of which ultimately furthers the same objective of forcing Palestinians off their land and maximizing land for Jewish Israelis, he told Al Jazeera. Since October 7th, Seidman said Palestinians in East Jerusalem have become noticeably more afraid of losing their homes. He cited the perceived increase in racist rhetoric and violent harassment that Israeli politicians and security officials have shown Palestinians. The tense atmosphere at the moment is causing Palestinians to think that if they have a demolition order, then their home could be destroyed next, he said. Yeah. The demolition of Abu Diab's home has compounded this fear, experts and activists say. Abu Diab is himself a human rights activist and the elected spokesperson of Silwan, a district that represents about 60,000 Palestinians in East Jerusalem. So it was a coincidence that they targeted his home because they knew exactly who he was. Mm-hmm. So they were sending a message. Read. Residents trust him to speak out against home demolitions and other forms of systemic discrimination that Palestinians face 
from the Israeli occupying authorities. This is not the first time that the Israelis have targeted him, said Angela Godfrey Goldstein, the Israeli co-director with Abu Diab of Jahalin Solidarity, a local organization trying to prevent the forced displacement of Palestinians. He was put in prison on one occasion, and another time his son was arrested. The message was to tell your father to shut up. I asked Abu Diab after Israel demolished his house if he would stop speaking out. He said, I'll speak out even more now. Right, he ain't got nothing to lose. But you see how gangster they is? Is that it? Godfrey Goldstein told Al Jazeera, Palestinian and Israeli activists believe that advocacy to protect Palestinian homes is needed now more than ever. With municipal elections approaching on February 27th, Abu Diab believes that candidates may be deliberately calling to demolish more homes to appeal to their constituents. Hmm. He said he fears that the far-right candidate, Ariel King, who is currently deputy mayor of Jerusalem, could become the next mayor. King has previously stated that he aims to limit the building of Palestinian homes in order to protect Israel's character as a Jewish state. In December, he posted on X calling Palestinians subhuman. He called them what? Subhuman. This is what they think about them, not just them. <laughs> they think this about especially us. And I'm talking about the true Israelites, the true Jews. Read. If King becomes the next mayor in the coming elections, the situation will become quite difficult. He has openly threatened to demolish Palestinian homes and kill Palestinians, said Abu Diab. All right, now let's go back to Rebecca, chapter 2. Mm-hmm. And now I want you to get uh, verse 9. Woe to him that covereth an evil covetousness to his house. So it says, woe to him that covereth an evil covetousness to his house. The, the evil covetousness to his house, we're about to get into. But what this scripture is talking about is it's talking about a person that covers up what their true intentions are to get gain for their own nation. Read it again from the top. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. And this is exactly what the small house is doing. I'm going to show you. Let me pull this one right. Let me go back. I hear you, Mom. Hold on, y'all. I'm looking for it. Must be this one. Yes, that one. All right. Let's read this one. Read it from the top. Tell me where you're reading from. From trtworld.com. What is Israel's proposed Ben-Gurion Canal, and is it related to Gaza? So I brought this up before about the Ben-Gurion Canal, which is a canal that they talked about building. The Israelis, the small has talked about building way back in 1948. They talked about building this. 
So now it's come up in conversation. Read. As Israel attempts to bomb Gaza into oblivion. To bomb Gaza into what? <laughs> oblivion. Oblivion. Demolition. This is what that white boy died for. Like I said, maybe he was privy to this, maybe he wasn't. But apparently, people are starting to talk about this. Read. Speculation grows over an old plan to cut a canal as an alternative to the Suez. So, it says speculation grows. So, they need, they're trying to get an alternative to the Suez Canal. If you're not familiar with what the Suez Canal is, the Suez Canal was built uh, back in the day to basically uh, make a, a, a faster trading route through what they now call the Middle East, basically Africa. And this is what separates uh, Egypt from, uh, what is that? It basically separates Egypt from what we know or what we call the Middle East because there is no such thing as the Middle East. That's not a term that um, Arabians and people that live in that region call that region. It's just Africa to them. But what the Suez Canal did was it split that region up. So what the small has to do on the Israelis is they're trying to put in another canal of their own on the other side of the Suez Canal. And we're going to get into why they're trying to do this, you know. With Gaza flattened, some think the canal might go straight through the middle of the territory. <laughs> and this is the reason for the war. This is the reason they kicking Palestinians out of their house and demolishing their house because they're making preparations to build this canal. Read. Is Israel's brutal assault on Gaza only in retaliation to Hamas's October 9th attack? Or is there a more sinister plan behind what Palestinians believe is the start of the second Nakba, a redux, a redux of the 1948 catastrophe that saw Zionist militias invade Palestine and drive out tens of thousands of people from their homes. Now, let's read Habakkuk chapter 2 and read verse 9 again. Woe to him that covetous and evil covetousness. You covetous and evil covetousness. Or covetousness. Read. To his house that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. So all of this is disguised just so they can take over somebody else's land. Y'all see this, right? This can't be talking about nobody else but the so-called white man. So he can set himself on high because currently, the Arab nations control the Gaza Strip. I'm sorry, the Suez Canal. They control that. It's on their land. It's on their territory. But if the small hats get the opportunity to build their canal, then they'll control, and it's going to tell you in this article, they'll, tro they'll control a large uh, part of exports and imports that are coming from Euro-Asia and Asia around the rest of the globe. He's going to get into how important the, the uh, Suez Canal is. 
Go ahead and read. As Israeli bombardment continues to devastate Gaza before a humanitarian truce and, and evict thousands of Palestinians from their homes, online chatter has put the spotlight back on an old plan by the Jewish state to dig a canal to connect the Red Sea with the Mediterranean Sea through the Gulf of Aqaba. The route of the proposed canal passes close to the northern border of Gaza. The besieged enclave was home to more than 2 million people before the latest conflagration started. It was 2 million people there. So how do you get 2 million people out? You start a war. And that war gives you permission to go in and bomb the hell out of them, to get them out. So you can start uh, your plans on uh, your canal. Read. Some believe Israel might even change course to cut it right through Gaza. Some believe that they're going to just take over the whole thing and just run it right up the middle of the strip. Read. And a damning report in, is, in, in Israeli media has deepened suspicion that Netanyahu government didn't act on intelligence warnings about a possible Hamas attack just to use it as a pretext to launch its clear Gaza campaign. And this is what I've been hearing, man. They were saying that it's possible that all of this was staged just so they could go to war and have an excuse to bomb the hell out of the Gaza Strip so they could get it. Read. So what is the canal project that Israel is so interested in, and why is it so intrinsically linked to Gaza, where airstrikes have killed more than 15,000 people, most of them children and women, in just a few weeks? According to British journalist and author Yvonne Ridley, Gaza might be standing in the way of the proposed path of the major second canal in the region. Mm-hmm. The only thing stopping the newly revised project from being revived and rubber stamped is the presence of the Palestinians in Gaza. The people. (laughs) You got to get them out before you can build. Ridley wrote in an opinion piece, if it comes to fruition, the project could disrupt global trade dynamics by breaking Egypt's monopoly over the key trade routes between Europe and Asia. And this is why y'all hear, I don't know if y'all been hearing this in the news, but um, I believe the Israelis, they beefing with uh, the Egyptians right now. And Egypt was mad because they were sending all these uh, Palestinian refugees, they were coming to Egypt. So this is why they're going back and forth right now because Egypt basically has a stronghold on the Suez Canal. Read. An alternative canal with Israel at its helm would also give the state potential strategic economic importance, according to the New Arab. The proposed canal is almost one-third longer than the 193.3-kilometer Suez Canal, which currently handles roughly 12% of the world's shipping trade. 12% of the world's shipping trade goes through the Suez Canal. That's a lot. It might not seem like it, but globally, that's a lot. Read. Over 22,000 ships sailed through this strategic route in 2022, considered one of the world's most important maritime choke points. An alternative to Suez, 
The canal project, named after Israel's first prime minister, Ben-Gurion, was first envisaged way back in the 1960s, backed by Tel Aviv's all-weather ally, the U.S. Hmm. In a memorandum dating back to the 1960s, now declassified, the U.S. had even proposed to use nuclear explosives. They had proposed to do what? To use nuclear explosives. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard that they were using nuclear or thinking about using nuclear uh, explosives to uh, bomb the uh, Hamas in the Gaza Strip. To create the canal across the Negev Desert, adding that at a sea-level canal across Israel appears to be within the range of technological feasibility. It, however, warned that most likely Arab countries surrounding Israel would object strongly to the construction of such a canal. And this is why you have all the Arab nations right now who used to be at each other's throats fighting against them. Y'all heard about them uh, back in uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and the war in Afghanistan. You heard about the Sunni Muslims going against the uh, what's the other one? Sunni and, and who else? The Shiites. The Shiites. They go and fight against each other. Well, guess what? All the stuff that the small hats, Esau's over there doing is uniting the whole Arab world together, bringing them together to go against who? To go against Esau, man. This is the beginning of World War Three, y'all. Read. The Suez Canal connecting the Mediterranean and the Red Sea was and was inaugurated on November 17, 1869. The former French consul to Cairo, Ferdinand de Lesseps, had first secured an agreement with the Ottoman governor of Egypt in 1854. So this goes all the way back to the Ottoman Empire. And if y'all if y'all remember, the first world war was the uh the Arabs or the British teaming up with the uh, with the Arabs to remove the Ottomans, the Ottoman Turks, who were actually Edomites, Edomites that converted to Islam, to remove them from their uh, their dynasty and all their lands that they had. And one of the lands in particular that they had uh, ownership over at that time was the land of Israel. Where we go. Um, governor of Egypt in 1854, which subsequently led to the formation of the Suez Canal Company two years later. The Suez Canal Company, a joint French-British concessionary enterprise, was given a 99-year lease to operate the canal. They were given a what? A 99-year lease. A 99-year lease to operate the canal. Does this sound familiar? If you know history, then you know that the Panama Canal, the U.S., they had a 99-year lease on the Panama Canal. We're going to get into it, Reed. A property of the Egyptian government after completion of the work. The genesis of the alternative canal dates back to 1888 when maritime powers comprising Great Britain Germany, Austria, Hungary, Spain, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Russia, and Turkey signed the Convention of Constantinople 
to ensure that the Suez Canal would remain open to ships of all nations at all times during war or peace. Now, these are all white nations, y'all. However, Egypt stopped Israel from accessing the canal from 1948 to 1950. So, they basically two years, the Egyptians set, shut the Edomites down to where the small has to where they couldn't use the canal. Read. After the Jewish state's establishment following the Nakba, the bloody displacement of an estimated 750,000 Palestinians. So this is, this is nothing new. It happened before. Them killing Palestinians, nothing new. Read. This led to the Suez crisis or tripartite aggression when the U.K., France, and Israel unsuccessfully attempted to regain control of the maritime trade route, international shipping the same year, sparking one of the biggest trade disruptions ever in maritime history. This, 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 is, this be the reason and reasons like this that wars get fought, y'all. America will have you thinking it's about democracy and the people need to vote and you trying to um, improve their conditions and standards of living, you know, just like they did when they talk about Afghanistan and how they was trying to liberate the Afghanis and bring democracy over to them and all this other rhetoric that they was telling the public. But in reality, what was going on was they were seizing the poppy fields over there because coincidentally, coinkydink, right? Right during the time they went to Afghanistan, Shortly thereafter, you had what's known as the opioid epidemic, which is still going on in America live and well. And if you don't know, poppy seeds is how you make opium. It's how you make uh, the other drug before they even make it into opium. Opium is called, um, I believe it's called morphine. And then they manipulated it a little bit more and they make it into uh Oh, uh, to well, I might have it backwards, but I know that yeah, the the opium, the poppy seed gets manipulated into morphine, and you you keep messing with it, then you can turn it into heroin. That's what I'm looking for. The word heroin, you turn it into heroin. There's various forms of it, but this, like I said, this is how wars get started. It, wars are always started over money and over um, products, man and resources, always. That's historical. And land. So we know. In response, Israel closed the canal to all international shipping the same year, sparking one of the biggest trade disruptions ever in maritime history. A similar disruption in 2021 had also revived talks of the Israeli canal when a merchant vessel ever given ran aground blocking the Suez for days. In June, the Suez Canal authorities raked in a record $9.4 billion in the current financial year. So you see how much money's involved, right? $9.4 billion they made in one year. A $1.4 billion increase from the previous year. And it would increase $1.4 billion, read. Follow the money. Social media user Celine Lilas, among many others, posted her take on one of the reasons why Western powers tend to support Israel. 
You might be asking yourself, why do they want to build another canal? She said, she says in her video, before proceeding to explain how Israel wants to seize Gaza, annex the land, take it over so they can build their canal through it. The U.S., the U.K., and France are all for that because it's going to make them a lot of money at the cost of millions of lives destroyed, she adds. They don't care. It's all about money for them. Bottom line. Read. A comment with more than 7,000 likes under the video said, in times of war, it's best to never focus on emotions or sides but rather to follow the money because it's always about money. It's always about money. This is the way these people operate. Now, let's go to this book right here, and we're going to go to page 33. We're going to read 34 and 35. From the Panama Canal by Walter Lefebvre, The Crisis and Historical Perspective. Page 33. Mm -hmm. Commander Hubbard aboard the Nashville received no orders regarding the uprising until late on November 2nd. Now, let me let me paint the setting for y'all. So I don't know if y'all knew this, but once upon a time, Panama belonged to Colombia. It was all one country. But they had a civil war that was sparked by the U.S. and their interest in building the Panama Canal there. So the U.S., was backing the Panamanians trying to get them to overthrow the Colombian government because the Colombian government wasn't giving the U.S. what they wanted, which was to build a, a, a canal. So this is what, what uh, ensued. Read this. Commander Hubbard aboard the Nashville received no orders regarding the uprising until late on November 2nd. Roosevelt and Loomis apparently did not trust the Navy with their plan. Now, this is Theodore uh, Roosevelt. Now, this is the same. These are the same people or the same family. I don't know if you remember Franklin D. Roosevelt. The D is from the length of what? Delano. The Delano. The, the Delanoers made their fortune in the opium, the, um, the opium wars that they had in China where they had China strung out on opium for about 100 years. That's how they made their fortune. So Theodore Roosevelt is an offspring of them because what happened was his um, somebody along the line had married in to the uh, Delanoir family. And what they do, what Edomites do to hide their identity in the dirt that they did, is they keep their uh, last name, and they use it as their middle name, and they'll just give you an initial. No different than uh, John F. Curry, who is at, his name is actually John Forbes Curry, because he's he's part of the in, um, the empire of the Forbes, you know, Forbes magazine that made their billions off the opium war as well, the opium wars in China. So this is how they try they hide their stuff. But this, this is the same family. Read on. Thus, when 2,500 Colombian soldiers Colon on November 2nd to prevent the rumored revolution, a confused Hubbard allowed them to land. Shaler, the superintendent of the railway, saved the situation. He first moved his cars to the Pacific side of the isthmus 
48 miles from Colón, so the Colombians could not use the railway. Then he talked the Colombian officers into traveling to Panama City, assuring them that their troops would soon follow. In reality, the soldiers next saw their commanders when all were packed aboard ships for the return to Bogota. The next day, U.S. sailors finally landed. Now listen to this. As U.S. soldiers finally landed, read. To ensure that the Colombian troops behaved. An independent Panama had already been proclaimed by Amador. But an independent Panama had already been proclaimed. Now, why was the U.S. there? To make sure the Colombians didn't jump back because they was going to back the Panamanians because the Panamanians had their interest in mind as far as the the Panama Canal being built. Read. A new nation the size of South Carolina was born, and the labor pains had been easy. None of the belligerents was killed. The only deaths were a Chinese citizen who had gotten trapped in some desultory shelling, a dog, and according to some reports, a donkey. The rewards of revolution. Roosevelt justified his aid to the revolutionaries by citing the 1846 commitment, a justification that had no legal or historical basis. So this commitment was basically... Uh, it was like a letter of intent that they had that the U.S. intended to build this canal on their property, and he brought this letter up to make them live up or hold their end of the bargain. Read. The treaty certainly did not give the United States the right to use force against Colombia, with whom the pact had been made, in order to build a canal. I'm sorry, they made it with Colombia, but they double-crossed it. Read. Nor did it require Colombia to allow a canal to be constructed. The treaty indeed justified United States intervention in order to preserve Colombia's sovereignty on the isthmus. TR intervened, however, to destroy that sovereignty. Roosevelt, read. But Roosevelt clung to the 1846 pact since he had little else. He was consequently interested when Oscar Strauss, a New York lawyer and advisor of the president, suggested the 1846 treaty required the United States to intervene because it was not made merely with Columbia, but was a covenant running with the land, regardless of what, regardless of who happened to control the land. So what he's saying is, regardless if it was the Panamanians or the Colombians. You had a contract with whichever one. Whatever people was in the land that owned it, you were in contract with them. You see how shady they are, man? You see how they will stop at nothing and how, how unscrupulous they are to get control of something they want. Read. With delight and doubtless a sense of relief, Roosevelt immediately ordered Hay to use this argument. The United States held to this interpretation even though John Bassett Moore, certainly the State Department's most distinguished lawyer, exploded Strauss's sophistry and suggested that in TR's hands, it actually amounted to a covenant running away with the land. The president later argued that the seizure had been for the sake of civilization. Like they always do. It's for the sake of civilization or it's for the sake of democracy. Or it's for 
for the sake of uh, humanity. That's what they always do, man. So what they doing over the small hat, <coughs> which is part of the Edomite nation, this is nothing new. Read. Thereby adopting the proposition that since North American actions were justified morally, they were justified legally. <laughs> they had a strong moral moral conviction to civilize the people of Colombia, I guess. Wow. Read on. His attorney general, Philander C. Knox, offered the appropriate reply. Oh, Mr. President, do not let so great an achievement suffer from any taint of legality. So he's telling him, man, this is too big to let uh, the the law stop you from doing it, man. Go ahead and do it. So he got this cheerleader dude scooping him up who wasn't eating by himself to go ahead and do the plan. Read. Knox's caustic advice was better than he knew. For soon, Roosevelt began a campaign backed by force to compel Latin American governments to uphold their own legal obligations. It was backed by what? To uphold their own legal obligations. He said it was backed by force. Mm, By force. What's going on in the Gaza Strip right now? What's going on in Palestine right now? Force. Read. Backed by force to compel Latin American governments to uphold their own legal obligations as he defined those obligations. As he defined it. You see how they make itself up as they go? Whatever, whatever is right for me is going to be right for you. You have to agree with it. It's like that kid that like makes up new rules during the game. Doing the game, yeah. No, you can't do that. You can't do that. Y'all playing kickball. You know the rules of kickball. He know the rules of kickball. But you win, and now he started making rules up that you never heard of before. <laughs> this, is what, this is what they do, man. This is in Esau's nation. Read. In one sense, T.R. acted quite uncharacteristically. He aided a revolution for a man whose central political tenet was stability and for a nation that had fought revolutionaries and secessionists at least since 1861 Unleashing revolution marked an abrupt change. They said this dude changed from his own principles because he's seen what revolutionary war does because he's a citizen or was a citizen of the United States. Mm. When they when they went to war against the Brits, the Brits <laughs> he knew he knew exactly what he was doing. Now give me Saint John chapter ten verse ten. St. John, chapter 10, verse 10. We're going to go back to Habakkuk, too. I hope you heard it. The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. This is what Christ told us in the Gospels. He said a thief don't come to do nothing but to steal. And that's what the so-called white man has done everywhere he's been. He's stolen things. And what he couldn't just outright steal, he will kill you and then take it. No different than what they're doing right now where? Over in, in uh, Palestine, in the Gaza Strip, over in Israel right now. This is how you know, man. This Bible's real, man. Let's go back to Habakkuk chapter 2. Mm-hmm. Verse 
And let's start at uh, verse 1. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So this is a method of getting the, 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 uh, the answer, the response of the Most High, verse 2. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. So write this down, read. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. So it's letting you know it ain't happened yet. Read. But at the end it shall speak and not lie. But it's going to happen at the end. So everything we're witnessing right now is a sign of the end. Like I said, the beginning of World War Three. Read. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It's like you know it's going to happen. Read. It will not tarry. Read. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Like I said, it doesn't address a certain person, but then it goes on and it gives characteristics. The first characteristic is, behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. To have your soul lifted up means your pride is lifted up. Then it says that his soul ain't right. This can't be talking about nobody else, man, because it ain't right to go in and kill all these people. You're killing thousands of people just to get land. That ain't right. They said a lot of these people were women and children that they killed. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're an Israelite, a true Israelite, we ain't got nothing to do with this, y'all. That's between... Ishmael's, uh, Ishmael and Esau, they ain't got nothing to do with us. So don't be trying to uh, stand for Palestine and wear a Palestinian flag and all this other nonsense because these same people are the people that sold you into slavery, whether it was the transatlantic slave trade or the Atlantic slave trade. The same people that's in your, your neighborhoods now they're selling you the loosely, the Lucy, selling you the uh, the cigars and the glass glass tube, which is used uh, to to cook up crack, or whether they selling you the pork, the pickled pig feet, the pig knuckles, and they supposed to be Muslims, but they selling you pork the stuff that they don't even eat. So don't feel sorry for them. This is all judgment from the Most High. I'm just showing y'all that. This can't be talking about nobody else but the so-called Edomite, the so-called white man. Read. Verse 5. Yea, also, because he he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man. When it says he transgressed by wine, it's talking about influence or indulgence. Read. Neither keepeth at home. And say he's a proud man and he don't stay at home. He be where? Everywhere around the globe. How the hell you got a military base in almost every country in the world? And then you go so far as to tell people that they can't even fly in their own airspace. Talking about this U.S. airspace, and you over there in China some damn where, or in the Middle East somewhere, somebody, this is U.S. airspace. You ain't even in the U.S. Read. 
who enlarges his desire as hell. And he does enlarge his desire as hell. Because what this is what he's doing to the world. He's making the world a big hell. And we know through uh what is it, Isaiah chapter three, I think it is, where it tells you that hell has enlarged herself. Hell is a condition. So this is what it's talking about. The condition he's put the whole world in is the condition of hell. The, the whole world's catching hell while he's living what? House to house. Read. And is as death and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations and heapeth unto him all people. This can't be talking about nobody else, man. Where else can you find all nations at besides America? All nations around the globe come here to the what they call the giant melting pot. Read. Shall not all these take up a parable against him and a taunting proverb against him and say, Woe to him that increases that which is not his. Read that part again. Shall not all these take up a parable against him and a taunting proverb against him and say, Woe to him that increases that which is not his. The word woe means destruction. So it's saying woe to Esau that increases this stuff that ain't even his, man. Stuff, All the stuff you stole. And it says increasing, meaning you keep stealing stuff. Read. How long? And to him that. Said, how long? How long are you going to keep stealing? How long are you going to keep taking stuff that don't belong to you? Read. And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee? Meaning what? The nations are going to get tired of this. They're going to retaliate. And awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties unto them. Booties means treasures, the spoils of war. Read. Because thou hast spoiled many nations. Y'all then colonialized many nations and spoiled them of their goods. Read. All the remnant of the people shall spoil thee. And it's going to happen to you. Like the scriptures tell us, matter of fact, hold this and get uh, Colossians 525. Yeah, read that. There's no Colossians, but I'm going to go to Hold on. I have it. Let me go there real quick. Mm-hmm. It might be chapter 2. Right there. Did he that do us wrong? That's the one. Oh, three. Okay. It's, it's 3.25, Colossians. Colossians 3.25 But he that doeth wrong Shall receive for the wrong Which he hath done Uh And there is no respect of person Because this is the universal law With the most high man You did somebody wrong It's got to come back on you It's got to Go back to Habakkuk chapter Mm 2 
and we were in verse seven. Yeah. No, verse eight. eight. Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee. Like it tells us in Colossians, he that done wrong shall receive for the wrong for which he has done. And there is no respect of person, man. Y'all going to get this back. Read. Because of men's blood. All the blood y'all spilt. Not just going on right now in uh, the Gaza Strip, but all the blood y'all have spilt over whatever continent it might be. The seven damn... Uh, Continents of the world, y'all have been there and spilled blood. Because wherever it is, y'all got y'all damn flag over there. Y'all colonialized the hell out of the place. Read. And for the violence of the land of the city and of all that dwell there, therein. And that's the judgment of the Most High. Now, let's get this. And the whole world notice about these people too, man. Now this book I've been reading back and forth, man. I've been just getting a little bit at a time. I ain't made my way all the way through it. But this is a good book. Read this, tell them where you're reading from. From the International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem by Henry Ford. Henry Ford, the car maker. You know the cat that made the Model T? He the one that wrote this book, and he he was a damn thief himself, an Edomite, because what he did was, and y'all can read up on this. So it was a brother, I believe, that uh, created the first motor vehicle, a brother by the name of Frederick Douglass Patterson, Frederick Douglass Patterson, and what Henry Ford did was because the Patterson vehicle was better than his, it looked better, um, everything was just better about it. And the brother, um, he had a, a a factory which he manufactured his car in, and uh, Henry Ford, uh, yeah, the Ford dude got wind of the brother building this car, and what he did was he, um, what did he do? He basically made it hard for and, and put out a bad reputation about the uh, automobile because a black man made it. So people didn't want to buy it. So what the brother had to do was he had to lower the price of his vehicle, which eventually forced him to go out of business. So this is who wrote this book. So he ain't no damn angel himself. So read this. From the preface, not only does the Jewish question touch those matters that are of common knowledge, such as financial. Now, the Jewish question is, what about the Jews? <laughs> now, this, like I said, Edomites wrote this, but even they, they have a problem. The chief house of them, the head of their tribes, which is the small hat, also known as the Amalekites. They got issues with them. And this is why. Read this part again. Not only does the Jewish question touch those matters that are of common knowledge, such as financial and commercial control, usurpation of political power. So it's letting you know that they have financial control. And what else? Usurpation of political power. No, the other part. Read again from the top. 
Not only does the Jewish question touch those matters that are of common knowledge, such as financial and commercial control. They said this is common knowledge, that they have financial and commercial control over the globe. This is common knowledge. Everybody knows this. This is what they shut Kanye West down or Ye down for when he came out and said the same thing, that they own everything. Everybody knew this. Everybody knew this. And that's why they came against him because they're like, man, you don't talk about those people. They'll cut your money off. And what they do, mm-hmm. they cut his money off. Hold on, y'all. I'll be right back. Sorry about that. Uh, we are back. So we're reading from um, the International Jew, mm-hmm. and this is the uh, preface. The preface. 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 Usurpation of political power, monopoly of necessities. Monopoly of necessities. They know basically that these small hats, these these Edomites, they control the world. This is common knowledge. Is that it? And autocratic direction of the very news that the American people read. So they control economics. They control politics. They control the media, like Kanye said. What else? But it reaches into cultural regions and so touches the very heart of American life. They even control culture. This is why every damn rap song that come on now is booty shaking, adultery, or drugs. They popping some type of pill, smoking some type of what? What'd you say? And murder. This is the reason why. It's not a coincidence, y'all. This is the, the nature of these people and this is how they get down, man. All right, y'all. So enough of them wicked-ass people. Let's go here. All right, y'all. So with it still being Black History Month, got a couple more days left. So I said I was going to dedicate this month to Black History. I only, unfortunately, got around to doing two segments on it. But 
I'm going to keep it going this evening, man. So this is some more black history. I want you to read this. From steamit.com, pyramids of Egypt were giant power plants generating electricity. Whoa, wait a minute. Read that again. Pyramids of Egypt were giant power plants generating electricity. These pyramids, I'm talking about ancient pyramids, y'all, were basically power grids. What the hell is going on? Uh-oh, got to fix this. Let's see. My bomb was late, man. I had some technical difficulties. So read this again from the top. Pyramids of Egypt were giant power plants generating electricity. So the ancient pyramids were power plants that was generating electricity. Read. One, the outer casing of the Great Pyramid was covered with white tufa limestone so tightly built that not even a razor blade could fit between the blocks. So what it's saying is the construction of the stones were so close you couldn't fit a razor blade through it. We're going to definitely come back and deal with that. Read. The white tufa limestone does not contain magnesium and has high insulating properties. This insulation property prevented the electricity inside the pyramid from being released without control. Look at that, man. Able to control the electrical current by the way they constructed the pyramid. Once again, <laughs> talking about ancient pyramids. Now, let's go to Exodus chapter 1. Let's find out who built these pyramids that we're reading about. Kiss up with you. All right, read. Exodus 5, verse 1. Exodus 1, 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob. So these are the names of the children of Israel that came into Egypt. Read. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Nathali, Gad, and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls. For Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. So, yeah, Joseph died, his brothers died, and all that generation. Now, generation is roughly about 25, 30 years. Read. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. So this were the, these were the offsprings of Jacob after uh, his sons died. 
So that that second generation, it says we whack mightily, exceeding abundantly, and waxes uh, and grew. Read. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, mm-hmm. which knew not Joseph. Mm-hmm. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Now, I did some research. I didn't want to get all into it and throw me off topic. But a lot of people were saying that this particular um, pharaoh that is talking about here in Exodus, the first chapter, is um, Ramses the first, I believe they're saying that he is. Because they're saying that Ramses the second was the actual pharaoh during the Exodus. But you have certain historians that say that uh, Ramses the second was, um, I mean, was saying that the Exodus didn't happen under Ramses the second's watch. They said that it happened under uh, Oumtep the second. All right? Now, I I lean towards the uh Oentep the second because uh scriptures from the Bible came out to verify or to um, substantiate what was being said. But what's interesting about the name Ramsey itself is this right here. I want you to read this. Tell them where you read from. Okay. From armstronginstitute.org, mm-hmm. the Ramses of Exodus 111, timestamp of authorship or anachronism by Christopher Eames, September 28, 2022. Now I want you to read that highlight part. Now listen to this, y'all. Yep. Nonetheless, we have a reference in Exodus 111 to the name Ramses or Ramses, a familiar name for a... And don't worry, y'all, we're going to go to Exodus 11. Read. A familiar name for a series of pharaohs who came on the scene beginning in the 13th century BCE. It's a, it's a familiar name for the pharaohs who came on the scene beginning in when, when did it say? In the 13th century BCE. So the name Ramses was a name that they used for pharaohs anyway. And it, this happened beginning in the 13th century, read. Ramses the first and second, on into the 12th, Ramses the third, and beyond. And beyond. So this was a common title that they would give their pharaohs, Ramses. All right? So I had to bring that out, man. Don't let nobody uh, try to tell you that the story of Exodus never happened and uh, fight and go back and forth over um, which Ramses is talking about or, or, or what uh, Pharaoh was ruling during the time of the Exodus, it really don't matter. <laughs> we know it happened, all right? We know it happened. We know it took place through world history. All right, let's go back to Exodus chapter 1. And verse you, seven. Yeah, verse 7, read. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, 
and the land was filled with them. Mm-hmm. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Mm-hmm. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so get them up out of the land. So this is his fear, Lee. Therefore, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. So we went, the first generation of Jacob's children, our ancestors, we were in Egypt living well. But after that generation died off, then the Egyptians made us slaves. But those slaves, the Israelites, built these treasure cities, including what? Those pyramids. So uh, going back to that article, you talk about how ingenious it was, how skillful it was. It wasn't the Egyptians. It was the Israelites that built these pyramids. I hope you all seeing this. So let's go to Numbers chapter 33 and verse 3 now. No, you can let, uh, no, keep Exodus. You're coming back to it. Yeah. And the reason I'm going here, y'all, is to prove what this article just said about uh, the Egyptians referring to all their pharaohs as Ramses (laughs) is true. It was a whole bunch of Ramses. So number chapter 33 mm-hmm. and read verse 3. Ataroth and Dibon and Jazer. Now where you at? Numbers. Oh, sorry. That was on 32. Okay. And they departed from Ramses in the first month. The day is us. Departed from Ramses in the first month. Read. On the 15th day of the first month, on the morrow after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with an high hand. Now, in- all I wanted was we departed from Ramses. So that's basically uh, the story of Exodus being recapped. But what I want to do is let's go to Genesis 47 and 11. I think that's the one I want. Yeah, read it. And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land. Now, this is when we came in. Uh, after the famine, we went to visit Joseph. Joseph was dressed like an Egyptian, so uh, our ancestors didn't recognize who he was. So he, this is after he revealed himself, made known who he was, and we came into the land. And so Jacob, Jacob got his brothers into the land, and he gave them all the best land that was where? In the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. So in the land of Ramses. Y'all see how common the name Ramsey was? Now, let's go to Genesis chapter 41, verse 41. 
Mm-hmm. Read. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestitures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried before him, bowed the knees, and he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now, Joseph was an Israelite, not an Egyptian, but here he is being second in command in Egypt, an Israelite. I hope you all see this. And, and the reason he made him second in command is because the Most High told Joseph in a dream that they were going to have seven uh, years of famine and seven years of plenty. And what he did was he built storehouses to house all the food from the seven years of plenty for when the drought season came in the seven years of drought. And the Egyptians were saved by the hands of an Israelite by the name of Joseph, our forefather. Read. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. You see, he gave Joseph that much power. But remember, after Joseph died, the new Pharaoh did not know us. The new Pharaoh did not know us and made us slaves. Now, let's get Genesis chapter 10 now. So by now, I hope we understand and can see it with our own eyes who built the pyramids, all right? It was the, the Hebrews, the Hebrew Israelites, not the Egyptians, because remember, the Hebrew Israelites were slaves to the Egyptians, all right? Now, where are we at? Genesis chapter 10 and verse, sorry, verse 1, and we'll jump to verse 6. Genesis 10 and 1. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. Right. So these are Noah's three sons that repopulated the earth after the flood. Now read verse 6. And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mizraim, and Phut, and Canaan. So these are the sons of Noah's son, Ham. All right? And it says, uh, the son we want to focus on right here. Read that again for me. And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mizraim, and Foot, and Canaan. So the son we want to focus on is Mizraim, all right? So we're going to go to the Compact Bible Dictionary, page 370, and we're going to find out what Mizraim or who Mizraim is. From the Zondervan Compact Bible Dictionary, Mizraim, son of Ham, referenced in Genesis 10, 6, 13. Which we just read, read. First Chronicles 1, 8 and 11. Mm-hmm. Progenitor of Egyptians. He's the progenitor of who? Egyptians. So the Mizraims are the Egyptians. We see this? Read. People of North Africa. The people of North Africa. Right? And that's where Egypt sits in North Africa. So he was the progenitor. Ham was the progenitor or the father 
of those people. Is that it? No. Um, Hamitic people of Canaan. All right. So now. Did you send them off? Number two, usual Hebrew word for Egypt. So it's the Hebrew word, Miss Ryan. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. It's the Hebrew word for Egypt. So that's why it's used in the Bible, says Miss Ryan. So we weren't calling them Egyptians. We was calling them Miss Ryan's. <laughs> All right. Uh, now let's go back to Genesis 10 and verse 6 again. And the sons of Ham, Cush and Mizraim and Foot and Canaan, and the sons of Cush. Uh, all we wanted was verse 6. So I came here to get the sons of Ham. Now we got to go back to the Sidervan Compact Bible Dictionary, page 213. And we're going to get the definition of Ham. Because we already found out that the, Miz, the Mizraim is a Hebrew word that means Egyptian. So the Egyptians came from this man named Ham. Now we're going to the Compact Bible Dictionary to get the same thing and what these people look like. Mm-hmm. The Hamites. Read. Ham. Perhaps hot. The youngest son of Noah, mm-hmm. born probably about 96 years before the flood. Uh-huh and one of eight persons to live through the flood. Uh-huh. He became the progenitor of the dark races. The progenitor means father or dark races. Read. Not the Negro. But not the who? Not the Negro. Not the Negroes. What the hell do you mean, not the Negroes? <laughs> I thought everybody in Africa was related, though. Everybody was dark-skinned is related. No, we're finding out here that Ham was the father of the dark races, but not the Negro. Ain't the Negroes dark? That's another dark race, right? Mm-hmm. But it says not the Negroes, but who was he the, the progenitor or father of? Read. But the Egyptians. The Egyptians. And we already got that, Mizraims. So those people. So what color were the ancient Egyptians? Dark. They was dark because we just read he was the Ham was the progenitor of the dark races, meaning he was dark. So what would his offsprings look like? They was dark as well. I hope everybody's seeing this. Read. Ethiopians, Libyans, and Canaanites. It tells you he's the father of all the African nations, basically. All right, so we find out Africans are black. Ham's kid, Ms. Ram whose name is Egypt, a.k.a. Egypt, was a dark-skinned people, dark-skinned nation. Now, watch this. Let's go Exodus chapter 4 and verse 6. Exodus 4 and 6. And the Lord said, furthermore, unto him. To, to him is Moses. Now, remember, you're not familiar with this chapter. Moses came to the Most High. He's asking the Most High to give him proof that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our forefathers, his forefathers, that he might go back to the children of Israel and say, see, look, God sent me to get y'all out of this captivity and bondage. Tell the Most High to give him proofs that he is the God 
of the Bible of our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Read. Put now thine hand into thy bosom. Mm -hmm. And he put his hand into his bosom. Mm -hmm. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. So he said he put his hand into his bosom or to his shirt, and when he took it out, it was white. Now, what color was it before it became white? you got to ask yourself that, right? And how do we know it was white? It's because it says leprous as snow. What color is snow? Snow is white. Mm -hmm. All right? Now, watch this. Read. Verse 7. And he said, put thine hand into thy bosom again. And he put his hand into his bosom again mm -hmm. and plugged it out of his bosom. Mm -hmm. And behold, it was turned again as his other flesh. It, it was turned again as his other flesh. What color was his other flesh? We know it wasn't white because in verse 6 it said turned like snow. So what color was it before it turned white? It was dark. All right? These are the other people <laughs> Remember, not the Negro. We read the definition of him, right? He, he was he was the father of or the progenitor of the dark races, not the Negro. So Moses, he's the Negro. <laughs> he had color. All right? Now, let's bring up another source to validate this. We're going to go to this book here, and we want to go to page 96. I want you to tell them what you read from. From Sex and Race by J.A. Rogers, mm -hmm. page 96. Now, listen to what J.A. Rogers said. Now, he was a historian that actually had to leave the U.S. Uh, let me see. Mm -hmm. To get his book published elsewhere. Because of the information he was bringing out. So I want you to start at page 92 and where it says Moses himself, right there. Page 92. Damn, this time. So fast. I'm sorry, y'all. We are not. We, I'm telling y'all, we ain't going to make it to the actual class. And Shabby, you might have to change the title. And we are going to go over because I want to finish this. Read. Moses himself was black. Now, this is Jay Rogers' account. Moses himself was black. Now, listen to the reasoning that he gives. Read. In all likelihood, he was the son of Pharaoh's own daughter, which would account for his adoption. Now, it says, in all likelihood, he was the son of uh, Pharaoh's daughter. And we already established that the Egyptians were black, right? Mm -hmm. Because Mizraim, a.k.a. Egyptian, came from Ham. And he was the progenitor of the dark races, right, but not the Negro. So we're reading about Moses, he passes the Pharaoh's grandson, read. Which would account for his adoption and rearing for the throne. Mm -hmm. The story of his finding in the bulrushes is so identical with that told about Sargon, king of Babylon, who preceded him, that to some it seems doubtful. Moreover, this finding a child in the water is an old African tradition. When Jehovah wished to give Moses a sign, so runs the famous legend, he told him to put his hand into his bosom. Now, we just read that in Exodus, the fourth chapter. 
citing it here in this book. Read. The hand came out white, proving that it could not have been white before. No doubt. The miracle lay in turning a black skin white. This, this was the miracle, because remember Moses was looking for a sign to take back to the Israelites to validate whether or not the Most High was with him and he had spoke to him. And turning it to black again. Hence, the, priest, the perfect logic of the Hamadan belief that Moses was a Negro. This is the perfect what? The perfect logic. The perfect logic. So you have to use logic when you're reading the Bible, and then you'll uncover the Bible's secrets. But it says that even the Mohammedans, meaning the Muslims, knew this to be fact also. Read. As Sir T.W. Arnold says, according to Mohammedan tradition, Moses was a black man, as may be seen from the following passage in the Quran. This is in the Quran. Read. Now draw thy hand close to thy side. It shall come forth white, but unhurt. Another sign. Now, we just read this out of the Bible, but now we're reading excerpts from the Quran that says basically the same thing, that Moses was a black man. Then it helps you know that how the Quran is basically a plagiarized version of the Bible. You finish that? Then he drew forth his hand, and lo, it was white to the beholders. The nobles of Pharaoh said, Verily, this is an expert enchanter. Now let's go to the Bible. Let's get Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11.23 By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandments. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So he grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, an Egyptian. He refused that. I'm not an Egyptian. Read. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And the people of God were people of color also, but they weren't African. I hope you all see this. Read. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. Today is talking about the Egyptians, and this is a recap of the Exodus. Read. Mm-hmm. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians assaying to do were drowned. And they were drowned. So I brought us here to prove that Moses was, in fact, a man of color 
how else could he pass for a dark-skinned Egyptian? But he was not an Egyptian. He was a Hebrew Israelite. Give me Exodus 11 and 7. Exodus 11 and 7. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue. Now, this is the most high speaking to Moses. And he's giving them instructions right before he came with the final plague, which was to kill all the firstborn of the Egyptians. He said against the Israelites, no, not even a dog is coming against the, the uh, Israelites. Read. Against man or beast that ye may know how that the Lord does put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. So the Egyptians and the Israelites are not the same. The Most High said he puts a difference in between the two. I hope y'all see this. Now let's go to the Josephus. We're going to get page 58, and we're going to read paragraph 6 and paragraph 7 about the, our brother Moses. Once again, Moses was a man of color, but he was not, I repeat, not an Egyptian. Read. From the works of the Josephus, uh, the works of Josephus, the antiquities of the Jews. Hold on. That's the 92nd mark, y'all. We're going to keep going, though. Read. Two. Six. Paragraph six. On the page. should be page uh, yeah, 68. Okay. The Antiquities of the Jews, Book 2, Chapter 9, Paragraph 6. Read. Hereupon it was that Thermuthis imposed this name, Moses, upon him from what had happened when he was put into the river. For the Egyptians called water by the name of Mo, and such as are saved out of it by the name of Yusus. So this is how Moses got his name, right? So by putting these two words together, they imposed this name upon him. Mm-hmm. And he was, by the confession of all, according to God's prediction, as well for his greatness of mind as for his contempt of difficulties, the best of all. The Hebrews. He was the best of what? All. He was the best of all the Hebrews, not the Egyptians. I hope y'all see this. Now jump down to uh, paragraph seven. Thermuthis, the yeah. therefore, perceiving him to be so remarkable a child, adopted him for her son, having no child of her own. And when one time she had carried Moses to her father, she showed him to him and said she thought to make him her father's successor. So Moses was going to be the uh, successor of the Pharaoh. He was going to be king of Egypt. That's why y'all see that movie, that child movie that they made called The Prince of Egypt, talking about Moses, because he was, in all sense of the word, a prince. But he remember, he was not blood to Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. Read. If, if it should please God, she should have no legitimate child of her own. And said to him, I have brought up a child who is of a divine form and of a generous mind, 
And as I have received him from the bounty of the river in a wonderful manner, I thought proper to adopt him for my son and the heir of thy kingdom. And when she had said this, she put the infant into her father's hands. So he took him and hugged him close to his breast and on his daughter's account in a pleasant way put his diadem upon his head. So he put his crown on Moses' head, read. <clears throat> but Moses threw it down to the ground, and in a puerile mood he breathed it round and trod upon it with his feet. Moses threw the crown of Egypt down, and he stomped on it. He was not an Egyptian. Yes, he was a dark-complected man, a man of color like the Egyptians, but he himself was not an Egyptian, read which seemed to bring along with it an evil presage concerning the kingdom of Egypt. But when the sacred scribe saw this, he was the same person who foretold that his nativity would bring the dominion of that kingdom low. So they had a prophet that prophesied that Moses being born was going to be the destruction of the Egyptian kingdom. You know? He made a violent attempt to kill him. And crying out in a frightful manner, he said, This, O king, this child is he of whom God foretold that if we kill him, we shall be in no danger. He himself affords an attestation to the prediction of the same thing by his trampling upon thy government, treading upon thy diadem. So he said, this is why he stepped on your crown. He's reenacting what he's going to do to our kingdom. Read. Take him, therefore, out of the way and deliver the Egyptians from the fear they are in about him and deprive the Hebrews of the hope they have of being encouraged by him. But Thermuthis prevented him and snatched the child away, and the king was not hasty to slay him. God himself, whose providence protected Moses, inclining the king to spare him. He was, therefore, educated with great care, so the Hebrews depended on him and were of good hope that great things would be done by him. So the Egyptians just didn't know that Moses was the Savior. The Israelites knew it as well. Read. But the Egyptians were suspicious of what would follow such his education. Yet because if Moses had been slain, there was no one, either akin or adopted, that had any oracle on his side for pretending to the crown of Egypt and likely to be of greater advantage to them, they abstained from killing him. So they didn't kill him. That was their mistake. Now let's go back to this article. Uh, matter of fact, before we go there, let's go to Exodus first, chapter 1, and start verse 8. Matter of fact, let's get let's jump a little bit. Uh, Story verse thirteen. Exodus one thirteen, and the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, mm-hmm. and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, mm-hmm. in mortar and in brick, and in all manner of all their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. So we were servants in Egypt as slaves. And we were very familiar with mortar, brick, all manners of steel. That's all we did was work. Now let's go back to this article. Mm -hmm. 
pyramids of Egypt were giant power plants generating electricity from cement.com. Mm-hmm. Number two, the stone blocks used inside the pyramid were made of another form. No, I'm sorry. I want you to go back to one. Go back to one. Go back to one. The outer casing of the Great Pyramid was covered with white tufa limestone, so tightly built that not even a razor blade could fit between the blocks. And this is the part I want to get to, the razor blade. So how these, how these uh, stones were cut, a razor blade could not even get in between them. Let's go to Exodus chapter 31. Why don't you start at verse 1? Exodus 31 and 1. And the Lord unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. So all manner of workmanship he gave... This brother, Yuri, the son of her, the tribe of Benjamin, he gave him this knowledge of all manner of workmanship. Now we're going to get into what manner of workmanship in particular. Read. To devise cunning work, to work in gold and in silver and in brass. The word cunning means skillful. Read. And in cutting of stones. So this brother was skillful in what? In cutting of stones. Skillful in cutting stones. Read. To set them and in carving of timber to work in all manner of workmanship. It says he was cunning and cutting these stones, and then he would have to set the stones. Mm-hmm. Why would he have to set the stones? Read this again from the article. The outer casing of the Great Pyramid was covered with white two-foot limestone, mm-hmm. so tightly built that not even a razor blade could fit between the blocks. So the stone was precisely precisionly cut, just like we read in Exodus chapter 31, how the Most High gave this Israelite their particular talent. Now give me 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 18. Mm-hmm. Read. And Solomon's builders and Hiram. This is Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders. Now Hiram was a Hamite, but he worked he worked hand in hand with Solomon to, to build the first temple, as well as Solomon's builders. So a lot of his Hamites from his nation worked hand in hand with Israelites. Now listen to this. Read. And Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders did hew them, and the stone squares. So they prepared timber and stones to build the house. So they used them. They cut them down. They prepared them stone and timber. Now, the same process that was used to build the pyramids was used to build Solomon's temple. Those stones had to be precisionly cut. Consistently carved. Now, I want you to look up, and I should have it up, up there already. Oh, I keep doing that. Dovetailing, you see it? Let me see it. 
So the process in which stones get precisionly cut is known as this right here. Read this. Dovetail. Dovetail. To cause something to fit exactly together. To cause something to fit exactly together, like these stones. Remember they said in the article you couldn't even get a razor blade in them because they were precisionly, precisely cut to fit and to lock in like a puzzle. Y'all did put puzzles the puzzles together before, but it was tighter than that to where you couldn't get nothing in between. But who and this and this shows you too who built these pyramids. It was it was the Israelites who the most high had gave the knowledge of how to cut these stones so they fit like that to where you didn't need nails, you didn't need mortar, you didn't need none of that. It just locked in together. Now let's go back to uh the article. Matter of fact, before we get that, uh, no, let's get the article. We run out of time. Pyramids of Egypt, part two. Okay. The stone blocks used inside the pyramid were made of another form of limestone containing crystal which is an extremely high electrical conductor and a small amount of metal, which allowed for maximum power transmission. The shafts inside the pyramid were lined with granite. Granite, as a conductor, is a slightly radioactive substance and permits the ionization of the air inside these shafts. When we look at an insulated electric cable, we see that conductive and insulation materials are used in the same way as in the pyramid. So he's saying you got the same um, granite and um, electrical wires this day and age that was in the stones that was that the, uh, the pyramids were built with, and it's an excellent conductor. Read on. Number three, the conductive and insulating properties of the pyramid are an example of flawless engineering. Flawless engineering done by who? by the Israelites that were slaves in Egypt, which the Egypts made build a pyramid. Read. However, a source of energy is needed for electricity generation. The Giza Plateau, where the pyramids stand, is full of underground water channels. The pyramids rise above limestone layers, spaces between them being full of water. These special layers of rock that transmit electricity upward as they carry underground water to the surface known as aquifers. So the ancient Egyptians had us build a pyramid on top of water, and water is an excellent conductor for electricity also. Hope you all see this, man. He dropped some bombs, man. Read. The high volume flow of the river Nile that passes through these aquifers produces an electric current. This is known as physioelectricity. The pyramid's underground chambers are granite conductors built within the rock charged with physioelectricity. This electric current is conducted directly to the upper part of the pyramid's granite covered subterranean chambers. 
granite is a very good conductor of electricity. Three no. The electromagnetic field that forms at the bottom of the pyramid is transmitted in concentrated form to the upper layers of the pyramid. On the top of the pyramid, there was a gold capstone, gold being an excellent conductor of electricity. Now I want you to jump down because we went out of time. Read the part right there. An identical form of this technology employed in Egypt 5,000 years ago was used by Nikola Tesla. By who? Nikola Tesla. So Nikola, Nikola Tesla owes the Israelites a check. The hell with them. Who they say invented electricity, discovered electricity? The dude with the kite. George, was it? One of them damn Edomites. Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Edward. They didn't invent nothing. They owe us a check. Read. An inventor of electric technology in the early 1900s in a tower he constructed in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Tesla, the inventor of such fundamental electric technology as the alternating current, electric engine, radio, the laser, and radar, was successful in simultaneously transmitting sound and pictures between continents in the Warden Cliff Tower he built between 1901 in 1917, he did no external source of electricity for this and even applied wireless power transmission technology. Wireless. So, and this is the dude that the Tesla, Tesla who Elon Musk owns, is uh, named after. He took his technology, supposedly, and he engineered the Tesla car that's driving around this day and age. But this technology came from the ancient Israelites, even though in this article it talks about the Egyptians, but, you know, the Egyptians didn't do nothing. They made us slaves. We did all the work. Meaning what? We did all the engineering as well. Read. Tesla had also built his tower above an aquifer and discharged the negative ions from the aquifer to the tower. The electromagnetic technology used in Tesla's famous tower is identical to the electromagnetic field set up in the construction of the pyramid. Let me do this. They stole our technology. Now, they keep talking about the Egyptians, the Egyptians, the Egyptians. Let me show you all something. Let's go uh, to Genesis chapter 12 and read verse 9. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12, verse 9. And then we're going to go back to the Josephus. Let me get this so we already have it on hand because we're running out of time. 12, 12, 12, 9. Yeah, 12 and 9. We're going to read the verse 15. All right, what do you want? Just put on the chart. All right, where are we at? Genesis 12, verse 9. Read. And Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there. What did our, where did our forefather Abram go, whose name got changed to Abraham? Egypt. He went into Egypt, read. For the famine was grievous in the land. Uh-huh. And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt that he said unto Sarai, his wife, Behold, now I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. 
Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. And it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman, that she was very fair. The princess also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So they took Abram's wife. So then when Abram came down into Egypt. Now let's go to uh, Josephus, page 38, and I want you to read... Um, The highlights, and so read paragraph one, then I want you to jump down to two. The works of Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews, chapter eight, paragraph one. Now after this, when a famine had invaded the land of Canaan, and Abram had discovered that the Egyptians were in a flourishing condition, he was disposed to go down to them, both to partake of the plenty they enjoyed and to become an auditor of their priests. Now, we just read this in the Bible. Read. And to know what they said concerning the gods, designing either to follow them if they had better notions than he, or to convert them into a better way if his own notions proved the truest. So he wanted to check them out. Ask about their gods and debate, basically. Now jump down to paragraph two. Now watch this. For whereas the Egyptians were for were formerly addicted to different customs and despised one another's sacred and accustomed rites and were very angry one with another on that account. The Egyptians were polytheistic, meaning they believed in many gods. Abraham, however, believed in one God, the most high. But they used to argue about their gods back and forth. Read. Abram conferred with each of them and confuting the reasonings they made use of every one for their own practices, demonstrated that such reasonings were vain and void of truth. So Abraham proved that their gods were worthless. Read. Whereupon he was admired by them in those conferences as a very wise man. He he was what by them? Admired by them. They admired Abraham because of his wisdom. Read. And one of the great sagacity, when he discoursed on any subject he undertook, and this not only in understanding it, but in persuading other men also to assent to him. He was great in explaining it. And he was great in, like Christ said, becoming fishers of men, fishing men to believe in the most high, the one true God. And this is what he did to the Egyptians, read. He communicated to them arithmetic. He did what? Communicated to them arithmetic. He showed them how to do arithmetic. All you conscious community niggas talking about, oh, Egypt, Egypt civilization started in Egypt. Yeah, by way of Abraham showing they dumbass how to do stuff. Read. And delivered to them the science of astronomy. He gave them the science of astronomy. Read. For before Abram came into Egypt, they were unacquainted with those parts of learning. They were unacquainted with those parts of learning. They didn't know anything about astronomy. Read. 
for that science came from the Chaldeans into Egypt and from thence to the Greeks also. It says that science. So Abraham knew science. This explains how our forefathers, the Israelites, Abraham's offsprings, knew science to build the pyramids. They knew dovetailing. Hmm? Dovetailing. They knew this. We were experts in this. We taught the Egyptians. So the Egyptians didn't build the pyramids and all this technological stuff that Elon Musk stole. It was the Israelites that built these pyramids. And that's where they stole the technology from, from us. So I hope everybody uh, got some out of the class. I'm sorry, y'all, I ain't, I ain't get to get really get into the class. It's just news and Karen and Vincent. This is black history, man. I had to bring this out, man. I had to bring this out. Maybe some of us knew the stuff I was dropping about the pyramids. Maybe you didn't know it, man, but now you know. Now you know, man. So hope everybody got some edification out of the class. Uh, to Wada Mashaba for hooking up the broadcast this evening. If you got any questions, um, you can hit me up at area code 314-482-9110, or if you just want to rap to it, brother, you can hit me up as well. But uh, until next Tuesday, y'all, Lord willing, tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend to please tune in to Tuzzle Pop. Tuesday. Tuzzle Pop. Tuesday. Tuzzle Pop. Tuesday. Every Tuesday. And with that, y'all, we're going to say shalom. shalom.